Lime Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Joanna, welcome back from vacation. Thank you so much. You know, I was listening to uh, the last episode that you recorded with us. I was only gone for two days. You made it seem like I yeah, was but, gone for like a well, few weeks. Well, you were because you missed two episodes. Okay. It happens. You know. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, we were trying to we were trying to 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 basically have the illusion to the people that we don't record both episodes on the same day, Joanna. But you just blew that spot up. I said two days. I said I was gone two days. <laughs> Where were you, Joanna? Tell us about it. Oh, I was in New Orleans for a wedding. Very nice. And yes, the the wedding was lovely. I did a lot of eating and drinking while I was there, and it was um not my first time going. I had been there once before, a decade ago. Really? So long ago. I didn't even realize until I was there. And I was like, whoa. Um, But it was Evan's first time in New Orleans. So I feel like while we didn't get to do as much drinking at newer bars that I had hoped we would do, Mm -hmm. we did go to uh, a lot of the classic places, got a lot of the classic New Orleans cocktails. Well, you have to do the classics if it's your first time, you know? Yes, exactly. So, you You know, know, we we did the... Ramos Gin Fizz, a Sazerac, French 75, Grasshopper, Hurricane. <laughs> Ooh, did you get a hand grenade? Please no hand grenade. No, I did no, not you didn't get, get this, Not a single hand grenade? Not, no, there was no time. There was just no time for a hand grenade. Nor really <laughs> would it have been a good idea, I have to say. You from the hotel to the wedding or something? Just like like cheeky hand grenade? Yeah, <laughs> cheeky hand grenade. Ah. <laughs> uh, that's that amazing. Which of those was your favorite, Joanna? I think – I mean I think there's just something about a Ramos Gin Fizz that feels very special because you don't get them often. Yeah. Oh, I also had a Vucare at the Carousel Bar in Hotel Monteleone, which is where it was created. That was that was good. But yeah, I think I think the, the Gin Fizz was my favorite. Yeah. Well, you definitely have to appreciate the amount of work that goes into making it. Yes, and you're right. That's not something that you're going to find everywhere. I yeah, I don't often order it if I do see it either. So, yeah, mm-hmm. fair enough. That's when awesome. in uh, well, when in New Orleans, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. It's easy to forget just how many classic and great cocktails have their point of origin in New Orleans. Yes, yeah, a ton. Yes. What about you, Zach? Well, I didn't take any trips, uh, and in fact, <laughs> for only two days, only two days, guys. <laughs> That's right, only two days. And uh, I'm going to say something incredibly embarrassing right now, which is that I've never been to New Orleans. What? Um, I know, right? Shocking. Uh, That's shocking. It's a, it's a black mark. I'm well aware. Um, it's been on the list for a while, but uh, for a variety of reasons, hasn't happened. Um, and I hope to change that sometime soon. In any case, uh, just back here in Seattle. Um, <laughs> I would say the thing that I had in the last week that was most exciting was um, a bottle of Barolo. So we did have a weekend without the sun, uh, which means that not the one in the sky. That's a frequent <laughs> occurrence here. Yeah. But uh, your son, the, the one, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the one that I'm related to. Mm-hmm. And so Caitlin and Lila and I went out for dinner on Saturday night, which is a thing that we don't get to do all that often, and had a beautiful bottle of Barolo um, from uh, Berlotto. Uh, one of the great producers in uh, in Barolo. Uh, and it's interesting. I've had those wines a couple times before, and, and they've often been sort of framed as, you know, one of the producers in Barolo who remains most kind of traditionally minded in their methodology. So they don't use new oak, they, they mm-hmm. age in these really large casks, et cetera. But the thing that it reminded me, and this was a 2011, so it's not like a brand new wine or anything like that. But the thing that it really reminded me in tasting it is is how even the the really traditional producers in Barolo and in and in Piedmont more generally have 
through just kind of a combination of maybe some slightly evolving technique and of course a little bit of climate change have been able to produce wines that uh, even in that very traditional method are much more approachable when they're still fairly young because 10, 11 years is still on the younger side for Barolo. Uh, and it was just beautifully expressive um, almost right from when we opened it. It, it, I, we decant- it got it decanted, but it wasn't even all that necessary. And that was really cool. Just like a lot of bright, uh, you know, kind of red cherry and cranberry and, and lots of aromatics. And yeah, it was just a delicious wine. And I mean, Adam, I know you and I share uh, a deep love for Barolo. Mm-hmm. So I figured you would at least would appreciate it. Not that you amazing. don't. Yeah, I appreciate no, it, it too. Amazing. I, uh, yeah, I, w- I wish I would have had some of that bottle. I'm glad you enjoyed well, it. Well, you know, I have one more bottle, Adam. Again, nice. all, you gotta, all you gotta do is get here. <laughs> I mean, eventually, eventually, eventually. <laughs> all right. How about you? What'd you have? Uh, so I went to Karasu this weekend, which finally reopened uh post pandemic so karasu is this really cool japanese uh izakaya and cocktail bar that's mm-hmm. actually inside walters in fort green um so like you go through walters and then they're like in the back space kind of a speakeasy vibe mm-hmm. but they don't take it that seriously as a speakeasy <laughs> but uh it's just a really beautiful space and um the food is amazing but then they do really uh classic like japanese influence cocktails mm-hmm. um and so i had a cherry blossom um old-fashioned that was really delicious um and mm. i mean it was a little interesting because like obviously the cocktail menu was very par down from what it used to be like they used to do like highballs on draft and stuff pre-pandemic and they only had i think six cocktails on the list right now they're sort of just like getting back up to speed mm-hmm. but uh we wanted to go support them because we really enjoyed it pre-covid um so it was cool to see that they're like actually reopening it because there was a while where we were wondering if it was ever going to reopen. Like, mm-hmm. I think Walters was just, like, crushing in in the pandemic and all the outdoor seating and stuff. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if they'll just, like, expand Walters into the backspace because, like, it's so packed every weekend. Like, why wouldn't they? But I was I was really happy to see that they still decided not to do that and and kept Karasu. So that was my uh, my most exciting drink uh, occasion of the last week. You know? That sounds nice, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this week I thought we could have a really fun conversation. So around wine and luxury. So mm-hmm. I think there's no denying that wine is a is, is somewhat of a luxury product. I think there are certain wines that definitely are luxury products, right? I think wine w- – any, any time that there's at least a category of something that is also – you know, sold at auction at Sotheby's and Christie's. Mm-hmm. I think you can, yeah. can pretty clearly say that, there, that there's a luxury component to it. But um, but obviously, you know, wine runs sort of the gamut of pricing from very, very, very cheap. You know, you can get, you know, wines under $3 uh, mm-hmm. to very, 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 very expensive. Yeah. Uh, and I think on the heels of the conversation we had about uh, cult wines uh, on Friday, Zach, I thought it'd be interesting to have a conversation about what makes a wine luxury Mm -hmm. and i wanted to look at this from a few angles but i think one of the things to me that is is really been interesting is for me to talk to producers who say well this is our luxury wine in our portfolio Mm -hmm. um and and trying to understand like what caused them to say that besides price because obviously okay price you know if if we're just going to say it's price then some people might say over 25 dollars is luxury wine or over 50 dollars is a luxury wine but I kind of believe like if you're wine if, if you're a wine brand that is also sold in like grocery stores or is very easily attainable, mm-hmm. then I don't believe that you can have a luxury wine in yeah. uh, under that brand. And I think it the same way of like fashion houses, right? Like if you could buy Gucci and Target, 
right. then Gucci is no longer a luxury brand. Yeah, no matter the price point. Yeah, even if there are other other Gucci labels, right? I mean, other other pieces from Gucci you can only buy at the store. If the Gucci G is the same, mm-hmm. yeah, then it's no longer luxury. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious what you guys think because the, I think wine has struggled for a very long time with trying to understand what is and isn't luxury in this space. And obviously, marketers claim all the time that their wines are luxury products because, of course, you would want to. That's what will garner you the highest dollar. But what does it actually take to make a luxury wine? I, I think what you're saying, Adam, is that like beyond price, availability has something to do with it. I think. Prestige. Prestige. Well, prestige, Both. yes. But I think about – I think you're saying if if you can readily get a wine, even if it is like you a know, $100 bottle of wine, if you can get it easily, yeah. that it's not luxury. I think so. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that though, because then I think of like cars and luxury okay. cars, and I think that availability doesn't really play into it. I mean, of, of course, there are cars where there are fewer of them made and they're harder to get, but I do think that a luxury vehicle is just has to do with the price point. Right, but I guess my argument yeah. is you would never see a Mercedes that is affordable. Like even their even their entry level is more expensive than Hyundai and Ford. Do you, so, so it's so not I just a matter of like getting the Gucci at Target if if it's cheap. Is I, that I what think you're it's, I think it's that you if you have any part of your brand, this is just one part of luxury I think, but I think if you have any part of your brand that can be bought somewhere cheaply, you can, mm-hmm. you are no longer a luxury brand. Got it. So okay. like if Mercedes licensed their name to Toyota RAV4s, mm-hmm. Mercedes is no longer a luxury brand. I think that's why you see in cars especially so many of the Japanese manufacturers and Korean manufacturers who create separate luxury car brands right. so yeah. as not to, you know, to so, so to be able to have a luxury brand, right? Yeah, Genesis preserve exists, it. Mm-hmm. Right, Genesis exists because Kia cannot have – there can be no luxury Kia. There can be high-end Kias and there can be smart consumers who think – who know they're getting a luxury vehicle for a cheaper price mm-hmm. and, they, and you can have, be a smart consumer. But it's not – but that Kia is not a luxury car. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it would be important here to define, I think, one additional element of luxury. And I think this is something that, to some extent, carries over from fashion, from cars, from other categories that we define as luxury, which is, in addition to sort of exclusivity, in addition to sort of maybe just uh, absolute price point, there, I think there with wine, you need a, a sort of element of quality, yeah, but quality. also a, mm-hmm. a kind of quality that is readily comprehensible to anyone who might encounter it. Oh, right? I like that. Yeah. And I think you think about how like a luxury automobile is going to have like leather interior, right? It's going right. to have, you know, a certain design aesthetic. You're probably not going to get a a neon orange, you know, luxury car. Like they're going to come in classic. Well, okay. I mean, you probably can, but in other words, <laughs> like I mean, yes, certainly if you go out and get it repainted, you can do whatever you want. But like, I think for the most part with wine, I think this is an important thing to note because it's why exclusivity and price point alone can't really define luxury wines. Because I think you could find, I certainly could find examples of wines that are, you know, only available in very small quality yeah. quantities rather and mm-hmm. are very expensive, but I would not consider luxury wines. Like I would not really generally consider Burgundy to be, especially red Burgundy to be like a luxury category because it doesn't come across to the average consumer as luxurious, right? California Cabernet, luxurious. Bordeaux perhaps, luxurious. Maybe, you know, white Burgundy, which uh, tends to be a little more sort of round and rich, 
luxurious, but, but things that, that are not, they can be expensive, mm-hmm. very expensive, but I don't think that necessarily in and of itself conveys luxury. Luxury so, is a very, I think a very specific kind of thing. So Zach, I was with you until you said Burgundy. <laughs> so I was totally <laughs> okay. agreeing with you. I do think Burgundy is, I think it's the epitome of luxury mm-hmm. based on the amount of people, the, the kinds of people that you see who, who buy it and drink it and how hard it is to get. But I do think that I'm going to say something really crazy. I do think a lot of it. Is, I think one of the biggest things is yes. How much are you in? How much have you invested in the brand being about what the brand says and and how how hard the brand is to attain, right? So mm-hmm. I think there are there are two different um, two different like ideas here, right? One is there's like the, the luxury that is accessible luxury, mm-hmm. right? And so you know. And then there's the luxury that is like true luxury, right? So if it's really easy to get, then it doesn't – then the exclusivity factor is gone, right? And so I think that's where, you know, when we go back to our premium mediocre episode we talked about, right? That's mm-hmm. where the second you're starting to do collabs with other brands, you're available in Target, yada, yada, yada. You're a premium mediocre brand. I would argue that the majority of wines that are sold in the grocery store that then have higher end bottlings that you can't get anywhere else are premium are premium mediocre brands there's nothing wrong with that but i think they should Mm -hmm. stop calling themselves luxury wines i think i'm going to say something really blasphemous i think that vuv is a premium mediocre brand because vuv is available at every single grocery store right it is the easiest and 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 basically you know it's it's the easiest entry point to champagne to say that you've made it it's the or, but it's not but i think that lvmh is smart with this because they know that that's the entry point and they hope that if you really get a champagne then they trade you up to a dom to a krug to mm-hmm. other other champagnes in their portfolio i think if if vuv was the epitome of luxury then lvmh would need to own so many other champagne houses so yeah i think that they actually play that really well in the way that they they've created that brand also you've noticed that they don't create any cheaper levels of that brand right so it's mm-hmm. there, there's the there's the orange label or yellow label whatever we're going to say call it color color wise it's like that's the entry point and that's sitting at what 60 70 bucks there's nothing mm-hmm. less than that i think also what you see in a lot of wine is like they'll create like a 20 dollar bottle of something but then they'll have 150 dollars bottles i'm like okay well that really then cheapens the, the product because right. at that point if, yeah. you, if your end goal is to again only if your end goal is to sell the 150 dollars bottles Right. Mm-hmm. If your end goal is to convince consumers to buy the hundred fifty dollar bottles, then if I can get the twenty dollar bottle pretty easily in the grocery store or at the regular wine shop, I think that, that that makes a harder case. And I think a really important part of this to understand too is that when you are trying to sell that hundred and fifty dollar bottle of wine, you're competing against a lot of other uh, wines that might be in that price point in general yep. category. And it, because we have such a hard time in general, maybe in all these categories, defining exactly what is luxury besides sort of some of these these sort of markers, but especially in wine, if you are if you are wine company X and you're trying to say, okay, here's our hundred and fifty dollar version of our twenty five dollar wine, a lot of people will be like, well, wait a second, is it really that different than the twenty five dollar bottle of wine? Why should I even why right. should I even buy this? Mm-hmm. Whereas if the only if again, as you kind of were pointing out with Vuv, Adam, if the lowest point of entry for a, a given brand is at that hundred and fifty dollar price point, people can be like, oh, well, if I want this, this is what I have to spend, and it's you know maybe it's a a good deal as compared to their five hundred dollar bottle of wine or whatever i i think that you're right that 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 just the the prevalence of a brand and it's and it's sort of lowest positioned um you know sort of offering is gonna maybe restrain and, and restrict how many people go after the higher end and it's why you see a lot of these companies too either 
the acquisition of or creation of new brands mm -hmm. to, to in kind of encompass some of these higher end bottlings if they want to do them. Yeah. I almost think you have to, right? Yeah, I th I'm. I think so. If you want to preserve your, br I, th I, I think what we're talking about is like a brand being luxury because yeah. if we if the brand wants to be luxury, then it can't have those lower price point offerings. So they launch a new brand where they can have that, and it's not a luxury brand. But I think a big part of this is also the consumer perception of luxury. Yep. yep. And obviously, that's like the premium mediocre conversation that we've had before. But I do think that for a lot of people, Vove is luxury. I agree. I think so. Vove, I would compare to Rolex. Like Vove is a okay. accessible luxury, <laughs> right? Like anyone, if if you you know again, if you if you're if you're a watch person, right? Mm -hmm. Anyone who doesn't know anything about watches knows that if they want to ultimately own a nice watch, they don't know enough. They're, they're not gonna. They're not gonna. Okay, so for example, if you really want to know a lot about wine and spirits, you're gonna come and read Vine Pair, right? So mm -hmm. the the site that we get compared to a lot is Hodinky, right? Which mm -hmm. is the the site for watch connoisseurs, and actually very oddly similar similar readership numbers, all these things, right? But people who are like love watches or into watches as luxury products, you know, all that kind of stuff, they they're gonna go and do research and learn. If you don't want to do that research and learn, but you just want to, you finally have you know gotten your first big promotion, you made a, a cool few few G's, whatever. You can go buy Rolex pretty easily. Mm -hmm. Right. It's very easy to get Rolexes. They're sold everywhere. Almost every jeweler around America probably has a few. Yes, there are harder to find Rolex models and watch geeks will tell you what those harder to find Rolex models are. But Rolex is pretty easy to understand for a novice consumer that wants to put their own one luxury timepiece. My mm -hmm. argument would be Vuv is very easy to understand. And I do not think this is a bad thing. I want to be clear. It is, but it is very easy to understand for, for consumers who just want to feel like they're buying a high-end champagne. Right. Yeah. Right. And they've done a very good job at that. And because they haven't then cheapened the brand with, you know, lower priced offerings, mm -hmm. I think they are still a luxury product, but an accessible luxury product. And I think the reason they are an accessible luxury product and you you do have to you can't put them on the same playing field as a Krug and a Dom and things like that is because you can walk into Publix and they will have Vuv. Right, you and yeah. you can walk into the corner jewelry store, and they will have a Rolex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's nothing sure. wrong with that. But I think that, that those are the similarities. Whereas it's going to be much harder to find a Breitling or some other styles of watches that are even more insane. I'm not, a, I'm not a watch person, so I don't know what those are. But in the same way, they're like, yes, you can get Krug, but you got to go to a specialty wine store probably to get the crew, to get the bottle, like mm -hmm. yada yada blah blah blah. Right, and you're going to pay a lot more for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think what's also interesting about this in wine in particular is that you have this weird confluence in what we would consider kind of the luxury category of some of these things like you're describing, like the big champagne houses, um, you know, California producers, et cetera, where there is really a lot of intentional, thoughtful, purposeful branding and marketing kind of intermingling with wines that are similarly priced, but are similarly priced because they are either made in very small quantities or historically have great resonance or, um, you know, have become beloved by right. sommeliers or, right, or right. wine wine reviewers or whatever, but where they're not doing any real branding. I mean, they're, they're, they may be positioned as luxury brands. Again, think about come back to Burgundy. There's a lot, I mean, probably the big negociant producers have like real on you know, full on marketing departments and stuff. But a lot of the other ones that command, you know, extremely high prices, you know, they don't, they just, they, right. but they're, they're still kind of lumped in there. And, and it's, it makes it all the more complicated because 
in some ways, I think it's actually harder. There's no equivalent in cars, right? There's, or may, well, okay, I could be wrong about this. I'm, I'm not a car person 100%, but like there isn't the equivalent of a, of a car, you know, a, a small, you know, grower producer in, no. in you know, in Japan or in, <laughs> right. you know, no one is, no, there's no boutique car manufacturer. I mean, or maybe there are, but like for the most part, like, any luxury car is still made by a you know sizable car manufacturer um, of scale that we just. Whereas in wine, you have people playing in this in the same uh, sort of arena who are very very small and do no marketing or very little marketing, which which I think is interesting but also confusing maybe to consumers. And it's why I come back to this notion about the the sort of flavor profile of the wine being a part of understanding luxury because because again I think to to be truly a luxury good, you know the the like I said the quality has to be sort of readily apparent to almost anyone mm-hmm. um, who has a chance to to try it, to to drink it, to sit in it, whatever the the thing we're talking about is. Mm-hmm. Because part of, I think, and this, I would be curious your thoughts too. I feel like luxury goods in general are sort of in equal parts for the owner and for everyone that they want to show off. 100%. Yeah, too. definitely. Right. The luxury goods are signals to the market, right? It's you want to, you want people to know that you're wearing Armani, or that you, you know, you have Dior on or that you're, I mean, it's why like, you know, Hermes bags are hard, you know, all that, like a Birkin bag, right? You want mm-hmm. people to know that you have these things in the same way that you're driving a specific car, right? Like there's, there's, you know, there, people are wired differently, right? There's the consumer that we talked about earlier that like loves to be thought of as like the smart consumer who mm-hmm. knows they're getting a good value. And so goes and buys like the fully loaded Hyundai and is like, I'm really like, I'm 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 just a smart person. I know that I got a really high quality car with all the same bells and whistles. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. I want a Genesis, you know, right. or I or I want a, a Mercedes E Class. Like that's mm-hmm. it. I want I want to pull up and like you know, there those are different kinds of people, and the kind of people that is the latter. I do think Zach, you're right that you need to have there. You have to have a, a a product that's able to immediately signal that, right? That this is luxury. Yeah, I think I don't know. I keep thinking about this quality idea though and the more i think about it the less i think it's actually like necessary in this conversation mm. like i think because because of this reason right like yeah. if you, you want to be told that this is a luxury product and that's why you're buying it and maybe that's very pessimistic of me to say but i think it's like you're spending the money on this product and maybe and i think with wine specific like i, I get the whole like leather seats and yeah. all the bells and whistles in a car and maybe like with clothing it's a specific uh, you know, fabric or something, and and there's craftsmanship there, but but I feel like with the wine, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I think, think that like being able to drink it and kind of know that it's a quality wine, mm, I feel like it's really more about the price in that. Well, I think in you're that instance. I think you're onto something in that. I think it's it's about sort of that accessible flavor profile that that Zach's talking about. It's then also about the fact that it it's a little bit more exclusive, right? So it doesn't mm-hmm. have, you know, offshoots of itself that you can get easily. It is expensive, right? And then I'm going to say something I think is going to piss a lot of people off. I think it can only be made in France, Italy, mm-hmm. and California. Hmm. I don't think that there are other regions that are really known for creating true luxury products. And I think Italy drafts off of its connection to fashion as well. So does mm-hmm. France and their cuisine. And I think California has just done a very good job of marketing itself 
it's wines is luxury. And really, if we're going to get super hyper specific, we have to say Napa, mm-hmm. right? As a, right. a true luxury wine region in the way that it was built in the way, you know, from the beginning. But I think the other, the other places around the world, you can have high end wines that some people consider to be quote unquote luxury, but they're not, you know, they're not well established and well and highly accepted luxury products. What do you guys think? <laughs> is anyone, does anyone disagree with me? <laughs> yeah, I think for place of origin, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, you know, part of what if we do get some feedback to this and some disagreement, I think there's going to be that point of contention about whether we're talking about a luxury wine or just a, like a very high end wine, right. very highly regarded wine. Because mm-hmm. I think even, you know, because I think luxury, again, to come back to something right there is that element of connection to, if not actual tradition, then sort of an established framework for people to understand the product. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in that vein, I want to bring up one other brand that occurred to me during this conversation, because I think it's a really interesting example. And I'd be curious, both of your thoughts on it, of a brand that has maybe done sort of a different thing than what Voof has done. And that's the prisoner. Mm -hmm. Because I think when the prisoner came out, it was a luxury brand. It was a, it was an incredibly, you know, Dave Finney did an incredible job of capturing what it was that people were looking for in a specific kind of wine from Napa which was both a flavor profile, which has been, you know, imitated to death uh, mm-hmm. since then, but also an aesthetic and a sort of way that it signaled to to everyone kind of who you were as a person, what you were after. And it was at a price point that felt premium, but not so untouchable. It wasn't, a, you know, to, again, to come back to our last conversation, it wasn't a cult wine by any stretch right. of the imagination, but it, but it still had this air of, you know, oh, I'm buying a, a the it's you know it's a sort of red blend equivalent of Vouv, right? Like right. readily available, and even in the earlier days became pretty readily available. But they have sort of decided that you know what, what we're going to try and do is sort of is take the the prisoner and expand it, and even introduce lower price point versions, like almost kind of de luxurying it, which <laughs> I find really fascinating. I, that is, I know not a word. Please don't correct. Me. <laughs> I think that's a fascinating point. I mean, I think that that's probably an example of a, a brand that sees a company that sees more money on the table just for the for the brand's name than for mm-hmm. what it stands for. And that I think that could be proof that when research was done, it was probably realized that it, it actually never was a luxury wine. It was always sort of like it was just the wine that like people knew because they felt smart when they ordered it, and it felt because I feel like Vuv, I feel like the prisoner is. I think the the thing of the prisoner is that I think is different than Vuv is. Vuv has, you know, invested tons of money in luxury experiences as well, like polo sure. and skiing and things like that. Prisoner never did that. I think what the Prisoner did really well is, you know, they engineered and built a wine that tasted the way you expected a forty to fifty dollars wine to taste if you were yep. sort of new to wine but had money. Mm-hmm. Like I really think that's what the prisoner did very well. I think that's what the prisoner continues to do very well. I mean, it tastes like le- the leather interior of a car. Yes, like, that's, that's that's what they're going for. <laughs> right, right. So like, if you were to <laughs> literally taste like it, but it's the taste sensation equivalent of sitting in a nice leather seat. It's the three series, right? It's like it's the okay, like I've you know I got some money. I'm gonna I'm not gonna go all the way up in BMW, but I'm gonna get that entry level. I'm getting that leather. You know, I, I think you're right. It's like, and it's for people who. You know, people are saying we're such assholes for this episode, but it's, you know, it is, it is interesting. Like that was what the prisoner did really well. I I think it's, it's a, it's a great achievement, but now I think it's, it is interesting, as you've said, Zach, that it's like, it's been converted from a wine upon its sale to now a brand. And so Mm -hmm. as a brand, I don't necessarily think of the prisoner. And I think most people would not think of the prisoner now as a luxury wine. No, it's not a luxury. I agree. 
I think maybe initially it could have been seen that way to certain certain people when it was still being made by Dave Finney and it was very small production and things like that. I think you mm-hmm. could make the argument, which is probably why it sold for so much money. Mm-hmm. But you know, this is what people do, right? They take things and say, "Oh well, you know, look, you can't blame some of the big uh, the big fashion houses that do these collaborations at Target." I mean, I'm sure it's very, very, very uh, worthwhile in terms of brand exposure, but you would have arguments from marketers around the country that would say that you are sort of, you know, making the brand less premium, right? You're de-premiumizing right. the brand, but they might say, well, we don't care. And we don't care. Yeah. You know, this is, this is better to have more people wearing our logo. I mean, that, that I think is, is what's uh, the conversation you have to always have. But that's why I think like we have to find a new term in wine for these wines that are above a certain price. That's not, this is our luxury portfolio. Cause I think if we're being really honest, most of these wines people are discussing in that regard, it's wrong. They're not. And so the way that yeah. they're even looking at the market is from a position of luxury, but these wines aren't actually luxury products in the same way that you could argue, you know, Chateau, you know, Margot or, or mm-hmm. Montalena or things like that are. Yeah. So what sure. what is a better word then for it? These are our premium wines. These are our yeah. these are our high snobiety wines. I mean, I don't know. These are our <laughs> I mean, these are our society offerings. I don't know. These are our uh I, I think know, this for, is for a lot we're going to have to crowdsource for these wineries. We could just be like these are our boomer wines, but that's just me. <laughs> you know, shots <laughs> fired like, at the very end. I'm <laughs> bringing the heat today, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what we could call them. I, I mean, I know I just fired shots, and I'm going to now get my cannon out because luxury brands have saying power. Every generation wants them. Mm-hmm. These are boomer wines because the next generation is not interested in these wines. So if if it's yeah. a true luxury product, I don't know a single person millennial who doesn't want to try Dom and Krug. Right. Sure. Right. They everyone knows their luxury products. Yeah. Everyone wants to say they've had them. I would say that that's very true for a lot of the high end Bordeaux's out there, etc. There's a lot of these wines that millennials do not care about, which I would say is very a very clear indication that they have not established themselves as being more than just the wine. What about like a screaming eagle? Would you ever spend money to get a bottle of Screaming Eagle? Which you can get on wine.com, we found. Yeah, I know. I stand corrected. I stand corrected. <laughs> uh, I think that's not how I would like to spend my money. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I think that, yeah, I think there are people that would. I Young did, people. Yeah. I think of a cer- of, in a certain class, yeah, but that's a luxury, right? Like if you're at a hedge fund and, mm-hmm. you know, you're doing really well and, you know, you've now learned about this wine as a sort of, you know, this, this really means you made it in the same way that like Pappy is that Pappy is a luxury bourbon. Right. Yeah, you sure. know, yeah. like that's why everyone's chasing it because it's, it says that you're really, really successful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know? So I think that's, I think yes for Screaming Eagle. I do. Mm-hmm. But then I wonder about some of the others like Opus One or some of these other sort of like, wines i mean the one we didn't talk about that's sort of like the elephant in the room from from napa that i think thinks of itself as luxury but i think of it more in the way that zach you're talking about the prisoner mm-hmm. is camus camus yep oh man oh gosh okay we're gonna really get fired up yeah I mean, like <laughs> like that wine's everywhere yeah you know it's not like that one i mean and that wine's also i mean it really one. it really has been that it really it, it really just sort of inherited prisoner's pl- position i feel like i think so i think i, I think you're 100 correct that's exactly what it did the kind of people who used to order the prisoner for me now order camus 
which is, I think, both a stylistic overlap and also just kind of a, yeah, what does it, what does it say? And I think, again, you know, to, to put one last point on this that I want to mention, it's that, you know, even within luxury, we, we can see in all these categories that there are sort of different slices of the luxury market for yeah. people who want a different kind of experience. Yeah. And for mm-hmm. some people, you know, again, to take it back to cars, some people want, um, you know, a sort of very, you know, luxurious SUV. Some people want a sports car. Some yep. people, you know, in watches, some people want something, I don't know, um, you know, analog and very stripped down. Some people want maybe something a little gaudier. And wine, too, is the same thing. And and that, you know, the, the these luxury wine brands or whatever we're going to decide to call them across the spectrum do serve different kinds of luxury clientele. And so KMS might appeal to one slice of that market and the Grand Cru Burgundies appeal to another s- slice of that luxury market that doesn't perhaps overlap a whole lot. Hmm. Yeah. I, I do think that it, luxury is a big part of a marketing strategy for any brand. And they can kind of use, use it however they need to use it in that moment. I do too. I just think if you're going to use it as your marketing strategy, you have to go, you know, you really have to invest in it, right? It can't be mm-hmm. like just a, like, oh, we're all like, we're luxury, but we also are for every day and whatever. I think if you're going to invest in in positioning the brand as luxury, you have to do all that all that entails right it's then like what is what do you surround yourselves with um you know like what's the look and feel of the brand what is the price point of the brand what is the experience when you go to visit the brand if you have a tasting room things like that i think are really important Mm -hmm. um if you're going to truly say it's a it's a luxury wine if not it can just be a really great expensive wine that is that costs that much because that's what it has to cost for it to be so good or because it's you know limited or whatever but i think you know zach you're pointing out that that is you know something to be aware of is i think the luxury we are talking about is the luxury that is this basically widely accepted by the full population as a luxury product. Whereas there's a lot of products out there that you or I might consider luxury because we we know the artisan that makes them and they are still very expensive. And maybe it's this, you know, small indie fashion label or whatever, but everything's mm-hmm. made at this really special, you know, a factory in Italy with the finest fabrics and things like that. Like that can still very much be a luxury product and especially among small groups of people. But those that's not a mass luxury product. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, I the one thing I would like to hear from the readers about, I mean, sorry, the listeners about, besides what you think of our, our debate here, is what <laughs> you think we should be calling this category of wine for the wines that aren't truly luxury, right? What 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 is that name that we should be all saying? Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing I've always – I always find myself puzzled by is like for these wines that are $25 and over or $50 and over, what do we call them? Are they mm-hmm. just expensive wines? Like, is there something else? Let us know. Podcastdivinepair.com. Zach, Joanna, see you Friday. See you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington, by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.